0: People celebrate momentous occasions in their history or the history of their families. Birthdays, anniversaries, things like that. The Church of Jesus Christ does the same. This year is the 400th anniversary of a momentous occasion in the history of Christianity. From November 1618 to May 1619, There was a great gathering of over 100 theologians, ministers, and a few elders from all over Europe to the city of Dortrecht in the Netherlands to decide matters concerning the Bible's teaching on how God saves his people. It was called the Synod of Dort. After months of careful examinations of different teachings in light of the Word of God, that Synod left behind for all the world a document called the Canons of Dort. If you have ever heard of the five points of Calvinism, or the tulip, they come out of this document. After the Synod was finished producing that document, the Canons of Dort, the members of the Synod were each given a gold or silver coin to commemorate the momentous occasion. On that coin was inscribed these words, Religion defended. They believed, and we too, that that synod was a key moment in history when religion was defended. What exactly did the Synod of Dort defend? By setting forth the Bible's teaching about how God saves his people, it defended the heart of true religion, Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. The members of that synod were required to sign an oath in order to participate. A part of that oath said this: quote, "I will aim only at the glory of God. So help me, my Savior Jesus Christ!" Exclamation point. I beseech Him to assist me always in this by His Spirit. Exclamation point. The synod was no mere academic debate. The heart of that synod was that the glory of God be defended. It was a gathering of the church that was bathed in spirituality and prayer in the scriptures. It was an act of worship that sought the glory of God. Really, it was a continuation of the act of worship in the church that began 100 years earlier in the great reformation of the 16th century. In fact, many people have called the synod of Dort the pinnacle, of the great reformation. The heartbeat of that reformation of the church in the 16th century was to set the glory of God at the center of all the life of the church, her theology, her worship, her practice. Indeed, the solas of the reformation show that scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, all having their culmination in the final sola of the reformation Soli Deo Gloria, all to the glory of God alone. John Calvin, the great master of Reformation theology, was driven by this biblical passion, the glory of God. It stood behind his preaching, his theological work, his pastoral work, and his love for the church. Shortly before Calvin died, he prayed this. The thing, O God, at which I chiefly aimed, and for which I most diligently labored, was that the glory of thy goodness and justice might shine forth, that the virtue and blessing of thy Christ might be fully displayed. That prayer echoed down the corridors of history into the work of the Synod of Dort. They swore the oath, I will aim only at the glory of God. But more important, the heartbeat of the Synod was in rhythm with the heartbeat of Scripture. God's own heart concerning how he saves his people. In Isaiah 48, for example, God says in verse 11, For mine own sake, even for mine own sake will I do it. For how should my name be polluted, and I will not give my glory unto another? That was the heart of the religion defended at the Synod of Dort. That in salvation, God gets all the glory. In Isaiah 48, verse 11, God says, I will not give my glory to another. What is that glory that God guards so jealously? God's glory is his intrinsic worth, his majesty. It's the sum total of all the perfections of his being. If you would take all of the characteristics of God, all of his attributes, his holiness, his justice, his mercy, his love, and pile them up put a line under it and a plus sign, add them all up, the total would be glory, glory. The word glory in the Bible literally means heavy, weighty. Not in the sense of physical pounds on a scale, but weighty and heavy in the sense of being infinitely important and impressive. There's some people who when they step into a room, everybody immediately knows it. We say about those kinds of people that they have a weight about them, a heaviness about them. Well, God is that infinitely. And he doesn't have to try to be that way. Some people try to be that kind of person who when he comes into a room, everybody feels his weight. But it doesn't really work because it's something you either have or you don't. God doesn't have to try. He doesn't have to, by effort, be weighty. Everything that he is innately, naturally, makes him infinitely weighty and glorious. And when he steps into the room of our lives by grace, we see it. We sense it. God has decided to reveal himself to us, to take off the blanket, to unveil himself, With all of his glory. He reveals that glory in his works and what he does. In the creation around us. On the microscopic scale, we see his glory in the whole functioning world that is one cell that we can't even see with our own eyes. All the world's data, scientists tell us, could fit on a DNA hard drive the size of a teaspoon. We see his glory in the vast universe that he created, so big, so glorious. Created, it seems, just so that we can see how great and majestic he is. We see God's glory in his works through history and his providence, carrying out everything for the gathering of his church. Like in the meeting of the Synod of Dort, there was an 80 years war going on between Spain and the Netherlands at the time. And in God's providence, the only way that that synod could meet was if there was a small window of peace in there at the right time. And that small window of peace came a truce between the two, right when there needed to be one, so that these all-important matters could be settled for the church. You see God's glory in the salvation he has accomplished in the face of Jesus Christ No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He hath revealed Him. Jesus Christ is glorious God revealed to us in the flesh. When the angels announced the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, what did they sing? Glory to God in the highest. They saw glory there in Him. The display of God's majesty in the babe in the manger. All His power, grace, purity, Holiness is love. Everything about God is on display in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see God and therefore his glory in all these things. Through the word and by the spirit. The word of God in the hands of the spirit allows us to see it. The word is like a pair of glasses through which we view all of these things. Creation, his works, the Lord Jesus. He steps into the room of our world as it were. By means of seeing all of this through the word. And we see him and we sense him. As the weighty glorious being he is. The calling of his church. And really can she do otherwise. Is to do what those angels did when they saw the glory of God. In Jesus. It's to enter into that glory. And to praise him for it. That is to glorify him for his glory. And the goal of everything that God does, finally, is so that this glory that is Him would be fully revealed and then fully acknowledged, fully praised. Even our salvation is ultimately for this end. That we might recognize His glory and praise it now and into eternity. That God does everything ultimately for the end of the manifestation and recognition of His glory does not mean that he's an egomaniac. He doesn't do it because he's so full of pride. He does it because he's God. And he may do no other. He must do everything he does to seek his own glory. If he's truly God, if he's truly pure and holy as he is, he must seek the highest good. And there is no higher good than his glory. Everything other than him is less than him and inglorious in comparison to him. If he would not seek his own glory it would mean that he sought something that was not the highest good and that would make him inglorious and in fact even immoral which is impossible. But even as he seeks his own glory and this is glorious about him too he ties the joy of his people to that ultimate purpose. He ties our joy to his glory by making us as the kind of creatures who when we're given to see that glory by grace and are taken in by it and overwhelmed by it and ascribe that glory to him, we, we receive joy unspeakable. We receive fullness, satisfaction, the height of peace and happiness. If you doubt that, look at the saints in glory in the book of Revelation. What are they doing there over and over again in the place where they are fully satisfied in that peace? They're they're seeing and they're ascribing all glory and dominion and power to God. Isn't that your chief joy? Already now, in part, to enter into his glory, to be overcome by it, and to exalt him for it, lifts the soul. So you see, if he would give his glory to another, he would both de-God himself, and he would ruin the eternal joy of his people. And thus he declares, I will not give my glory to another. Of all the glorious things God reveals about himself, even in the face of Jesus Christ, there is little more glorious about God than that he is sovereign over all things. Sovereign in creation, sovereign in history, sovereign in his church, sovereign in coming down in our flesh, defeating sin and death and rising again, Sovereign in applying his grace to our hearts. All that, known through his word and spirit, that he is sovereign in all he does, is the height of the revelation of his glory. That's why throughout scripture, God is continually calling his people to recognize his sovereignty over all things. That's why in Isaiah 48, right after God says, I will give my glory to no other, God immediately declares... His sovereignty over everything. Verses 11 through 13. In 11 he says, I will not give my glory to another. And he continues, Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he, I am the first. I also am the last. Mine hand also hath laid the foundation of the earth. And my right hand hath spanned the heavens. When I call unto them, they stand up together. God will give his glory to no other, he says. And here is why he says, I am sovereign. I'm the first. I'm the last. I created everything by the word of my power. I laid the foundation of the earth. I tossed the stars into the sky. When I speak, everything stands up together. It stands at attention. And he keeps going, talking about his sovereignty. In the next verses, verses 14 and 15. All ye assemble yourselves in here. Gather round here. Which among them hath declared these things? The Lord hath loved him, that is Israel. He will do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be on the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yea, I have called him. And there it's a reference to Cyrus, who will allow Israel to go back to Canaan. I have brought him, and he shall make his way prosperous. Assemble together, gather, hear this. I am in control of all the nations and kings of the earth. I will... In my sovereignty, raise up this king, the mightiest of the land, to let you go back. I'm sovereign. I'm sovereign in your salvation. Remember that Isaiah 48 comes to the captives in Babylon. So that God is writing all this about his glory and that he will not share with another. And all this about his sovereignty. Because he's showing the Israelites that he is the only one who can and who will save them. And that he will do it. and He will do it powerfully and sovereignly. And he'll do it for the glory of his own name. He's telling them that their return to Canaan and their deliverance from their sins does not depend in any degree upon themselves, but only upon his sovereign good pleasure. In order to see that in Isaiah 48, You have to start by recognizing that Isaiah 48 draws to a climax, a theme that's been rolling along like a wave in chapters 40 through 47 of Isaiah. A theme that's been building steam until it finally crashes down in Isaiah 48. And that theme is the utter sinfulness and inability of Israel. Part of the purpose of the captivity was to force Israel to see the depths of her sin. And in chapters 40 through 47, God is is driving that point home. And in chapter 48 here, God brings it home to Israel. He says about her in verse 4 that she's obstinate. She's been stubborn in her sin, unsubmissive. Her neck is like iron and she refuses to bow under the yoke of God's law. In verse 6, she's deaf to the Lord's word. God speaks, but she doesn't know the things that he speaks because she doesn't pay attention. In verse 8, she's treacherous. She's backstabbing. She's committed only to herself. And then in verse 8, God says, And you, Israel, were all this from the womb. This is not simply some learned behavior. You were this from the womb. This is your nature. You're depraved. You, You deserve my wrath. And you have no right to be saved. And no one really would ever think to rescue you. And you cannot rescue yourselves. But then, in verse 9, God preaches the gospel to them. I will defer my anger. I will refrain for thee that I cut thee not off. I will defer my just anger against your sin. I will deflect my wrath. And with Isaiah 53 coming up shortly, we know... that anger and wrath is deferred to fall instead upon his own son who can bear it and pay for the sins of his people. So that the point that God is making is that when his people are nothing and can do nothing and deserve nothing, he as God, sovereign over all things in creation and in the nations, is the God who also sovereignly saves. And so the result is that in verse 20, God says, When I do this thing, my people will know that they had no part to play in their salvation. And they're going to be overwhelmed by this. They're not going to be able to believe that I saved them. They will come back from Babylon, therefore declaring, singing this song to the ends of the earth. Verse 20. The Lord hath redeemed his servant Jacob. The Lord hath redeemed his servant Jacob ascribing all glory to him in their salvation. They won't come back, God says, saying that the Lord has made redemption possible for his servant Jacob. It doesn't say that they will come back saying, the Lord hath helped Jacob to save himself. Or the Lord hath made redemption possible for Babylon and Jacob, but Jacob was the only one smart enough to accept it. But instead, the Lord hath redeemed. He saved. He brought us from Babylon sovereignly by a mighty hand and a stretched out arm. And then the next verse, verse 21, just like he did in the days when he delivered us from Egypt. Did we deliver ourselves from bondage? Did we get water from the rock for ourselves? No, the Lord hath done it. And we had nothing to do with it. We were dead. We were bound. We were blind. We were deserving of his Judgment, and he did it by his sovereign power for those whom he desired to save out of his own good pleasure. Now circle back to verse 11. Why does he do it this way? Why does he sovereignly save his people so that it's his work from beginning to end? For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it, because I will not give my glory to another. And if I did it in a way, where it was ultimately up to you, Israel, I would be giving my glory to another. Salvation is of the Lord, that all glory might be to the Lord. That's God's theology of salvation in Isaiah forty eight. And because it's God's, it must be ours too. Is it? Is it yours? Does your understanding of how God saved you bring ultimate glory to him? Or does it logically lead to God giving his glory to another? Does it lead to God giving his glory to you? And as his child, do you not want your father to receive all glory in your salvation? Isn't it your joy when when he does? When all things point to him, in Isaiah 48, religion is defended by God himself. Salvation is for his glory. Next time, I will submit to you, by way of an introduction to the five points of Calvinism, that God in his providence defended that same religion at the Synod of Dort. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thou art great and worthy of all praise and glory and dominion and power. And our joy, Father, is seeing thy glory being overwhelmed by it, and ascribing all praise to thee. Help us that in these next weeks we study thy word and thy teaching on salvation, that all glory may go to thee. In Jesus' name, amen.